This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hello and welcome to Episode 3 of the Polar Geopolitics Podcast. This is Eric Paglia in Stockholm, Sweden. Ten years ago, senior government officials from the Arctic Ocean littoral states, Canada, Denmark, Norway, Russia, and the United States, gathered in Alulasak, Greenland, for the first meeting of what came to be called the A5. The purpose was to promote the Arctic as a region of peaceful cooperation that could and should be governed through already existing institutions, and did not require any sort of overarching Arctic treaty, which some parties were calling for at the time. The meeting generated a degree of controversy, as other Arctic Council states were not invited to participate and did not appreciate being excluded from this new forum for Arctic governance issues. To commemorate the 10th anniversary of the Alulaset Declaration that resulted from the A5 meeting in 2008, representatives of all eight of the Arctic regional states recently gathered again in Greenland. Joining me on this episode of Polar Geopolitics to discuss the history, legacy, and continued relevance of the A5 in the latest meeting in Alulaset is John Robert Clemenson, an associate professor at the Royal Danish Defense College, who has co-authored a report on the Alulaset Initiative and is an expert on Arctic governance as well as Danish-Greenlandic relations. This is the first of a two-part interview with John Robert Clemenson. I began by asking him to explain the emergence of the A5 in 2008 and how Arctic geopolitics today are different than they were 10 years ago at the time of the first meeting in Alulaset. If you rewind the clock back to 2007-2008, it was basically a time where, where there was a lot of insecurity about how uh, Arctic governance would work in the future. As you, of course, know, Russia famously planted a, a flag on the North Pole seabed in August 2007, and that had consequences for Arctic diplomacy. You had the, uh, especially the Canadian government went out and was very critical of that whole episode. And... More generally speaking, I think a lot of the, uh, the regional institutions, even the Arctic Council at that time, had a very limited role. So there was basically what we in our report call a governance gap in the Arctic at that time. And that created a lot of uh, uncertainty about whether the regional states were actually up to the task of governing that institution. And, and in that period, you also see a lot of NGOs and even the European Parliament who went out and called for an, uh, a fundamental reordering of the region with the Arctic Treaty, for instance. So the Illulicid Declaration uh, and the Illulicid Initiative was a direct reaction to, uh, to those events and those trends. And I think the purpose of the initiative was threefold. So first of all, it was to signal to the world that the Arctic states, especially the, the five uh, coastal states, were up to the task of governing that region. Basically, they said to the world, listen, calm down. We can actually provide uh, sustainable governance solutions within the uh, existing legal framework uh, of the Arctic. And secondly, of course, the purpose of that was to block calls for an, uh, an Arctic treaty. And then furthermore, of course, by having the meeting, the coastal states de facto created a new regional forum, the A5, which have then afterwards existed and had its ups and downs over the past 10 years. That's basically the background, right? It was a period filled with insecurity, and the Lulisat Declaration and other governance initiatives were an attempt to diminish that uncertainty. 
it's considered a success, the A5 process, even though at the time it was quite criticized, especially by uh, some of the other states. Of course, you had the Arctic Council states, which is the A5 plus Finland, uh, Sweden, and uh, Iceland, which were feeling rather uh, excluded. What has happened in that in the last 10 years? We had this meeting just a few days ago uh, back in Illustat to celebrate 10 years uh, of the uh, of the declaration, and those three states were included. So in some ways, the A5, has it lost its sort of exclusivity? Is it trying to become more inclusive? Yeah. So one of the really interesting things about the Lulucet initiative is that if you go back and you look at the original documents, and uh, we have some of these documents via WikiLeaks, you'll see that even the states themselves at the time weren't entirely certain what they wanted to do with this new forum. They weren't quite sure whether the A5 should become a minor supplement to the Arctic Council or whether it should become a competitor to the Arctic Council, whether the Arctic Council had had run its course and maybe there was a need for a new and more effective regional institution. And we, we see this in, in, in some of the meetings in Ilulisat in 2008, where you have, you have some of the Americans meeting with diplomats from some of the other, other nations and, and basically telling them, actually, we don't really know whether we like the Arctic Council anymore. Maybe we should use this new forum as an alternative or as a, a supplement to the Arctic Council. And uh, you have a period then until roughly 2010 where there are a lot of tensions between the two institutions. And, and as you rightly mentioned, Iceland especially was particularly critical of A5, which they believed uh, would undermine the Arctic Council. But in 2010, famously, Canada tried to have a second A5 meeting, and that went <laughs> did not go as planned basically because the Americans told the, the Canadians, listen, we've made a decision, we, uh, we want to emphasize the Arctic Council, and we don't think that the A5 forum is the best way to run things in the Arctic. And what basically happens after that is that A5 continues, but it, it continues mainly as a forum for civil servants. It becomes a lot more inclusive, and it becomes much more focused on practical issues especially the continental shelf cooperation and Arctic fisheries, or fisheries in the Central Arctic Ocean, where you have that agreement in first in 2015 between the A5 states, where they basically ban fisheries in the Central Arctic Ocean, and then a second agreement in 2017 between the A5 states and then the so-called plus five, which is Iceland, the EU, Japan, South Korea, and China, about fisheries in the Central Arctic Ocean. And this recent meeting basically just solidifies that pattern. In the recent meeting in Ilulisat, of course, both uh, Finland and Sweden and Iceland was invited, and so was Inuit organizations. And in that sense, it's almost as if we've come full circle. The Arctic, Arctic 5 has now become a, a really a rather, rather inclusive forum focused on very nitty-gritty practical issues. And the days where we discussed whether or not it would become a competitor to the Arctic Council those days are over. In your report, though, you imply that the A5 is still relevant. But at the same time now, you're saying that the Arctic Council, the A8 format, is more important than the A5. Even though, as you mentioned, the A5 was the form of choice for the recent Arctic Ocean's fisheries negotiations. It's also interesting how Iceland in particular was very upset about being excluded from the original Ilulisat meeting in 2008. Do you think this might be the reason why they launched their own platform, the Arctic Circle Assembly? They would not be dependent on any other Arctic state groupings? 
I'm of course not privy to the <laughs> to the uh, to the inner thoughts of the uh, the people in Iceland who who took the initiative for the uh, Arctic Circle Forum, but I strongly suspect that those two things are heavily linked to one another. And I mean, you, you, if you just go and see Iceland's the Icelandic Parliament's Arctic Strategy document, I think it's from 2011. As I recall, it lists ten priorities for Iceland in the Arctic, and I think that at least five of them are related to the Illulisid Declaration. So this was a really, really big thing for Iceland. And and you can you can kind of see why, right? Because Iceland is, is a big fishing nation, and, and suddenly, at least I think in Reykjavik, there was this fear that the A5 would become a forum for negotiating different fishing rights in the Central Arctic Ocean, which it actually did. But what, of course, happened was that when they began to, uh, to negotiate these different fishing questions, the Icelanders were then included in the process and actually given a voice in the negotiations. So in that sense, that kind of meant that the, there was no reason anymore for the Icelanders to be so, so critical of the A5. So I still think that A5 has a role to play in Arctic governance today. And first of all, I mean... Both the, as I said before, both the continental shelf negotiations and the uh, fisheries negotiations are ongoing. And there are meetings in an A5 format about those questions. And once these processes result in a sort of agreement, then there would be a, a natural moment for the A5 states to maybe reconvene and to talk about what is it we've accomplished and maybe to take a little bit of the, uh, take a little bit of the glory. But I also think that, and, and, and we also mentioned this in, in our report, I think that for the A5 states, it's an important fallback forum. So if things stall in the Arctic Council for some reason, it's nice to have a secondary forum that they can take out of the drawer and then say, okay, we can't uh, agree on things in the Arctic Council. Maybe we can agree in A5 instead. And that kind of gives the A5 states a club that they can use to pressure some of the other states. I think that's very convenient. For, for for diplomats from the A5 states, I'm pretty sure that they would never admit it in public. But I, I think it is it is convenient to just maintain A5 as a forum that you can use if it ever became necessary. And perhaps also since it's not such a high-profile organization like the Arctic Council, perhaps decisions and discussions can be made on a, in a less highly publicized way. And that might in some ways be convenient for some of these A5 states. One of the, the, yeah, one of the, one of the big successes that's often associated with the, the Arctic Council is the engagement with, with Russia. That Russia, even mm. when there's tensions elsewhere in the world between some of the other states and Russia, that the Arctic Council discussions aren't sidetracked by that. Is that also true in the A5? Mm. I mean, you mentioned that one of the original motivations for the A5 was this flag planting event back in 2007. Are relations with, with Russia inside of the A5 grouping, is it, are they just as smooth and, some might say, exceptional as they are in the Arctic Council, or perhaps even more so? I mean, that's definitely my impression. From our, our interviews with people who have been engaged in this process, we, we definitely got the impression that Russia really likes the A5. Because, I mean, A5 gives you a, a chance to, <laughs> to exclude other, other actors, and I think that's very much in alignment with how Russia likes to engage with the Arctic diplomatically. I mean, just to give you an example, when we talked with people who had taken part in the original Lulucet process, it was very obvious that Russia had been on board from the beginning. 
whereas some of the other states, both Norway and the United States and Canada, had more reservations about the A5 as a forum. So in that sense, I think that basically we see the same pattern as we're seeing in the Arctic Council, that Russia is very interested in cooperating within an A5 forum, just as it is interested in engaging or cooperating in an Arctic Council forum. And you, know, you mentioned the option to exclude other actors inside of the A5 as opposed to the Arctic Council. Is that also a motivation for keeping the A5 alive as, as a forum, not to have to deal with the complications that uh, arise uh, when dealing with observers? I mean, you mentioned the, the fisheries moratorium, which also in, in involved some of the big observers, such as China, Japan, South Korea. But is the A5 also motivated by the exclusivity in terms of just those five countries, no observers, no other actors to sort of disrupt the discussions? Well, I think maybe I would switch the uh, the way that these forums uh, work a little bit. I would actually argue that the A5 is really important in that regard because it gives the A5 states a forum to fall back on. So the the role of different non-Arctic states in the Arctic will, I, I believe, will become one of the big challenges in the coming decade. And we, we don't really know how that will affect Arctic governance and how it will affect the Arctic Council. And in that situation, it's just, I think, very nice for the coastal states to have a fallback option to use in case things stall in the Arctic Council. And I think it, it gives the Arctic coastal states some leverage that they can use in those discussions. As we mentioned in, in the report, I think that Arctic politics right now is very focused on inclusivity. And we see that in, in the Arctic Council, and we also see that right now in the A5. But I just think that it's important to remember that things can change. And in that situation, it's very nice to have alternatives. And the A5 is one of those alternatives that can become very useful for the, for the coastal states. You also mentioned that uh, in the report uh, that the Arctic order is still in flux. Is that what you're alluding to there in terms of having fallback options in case the Arctic Council doesn't work or it stalls in some way? Or are there other um, fora like Arctic well, think, Circle Assembly that, that are also sort of shaking things up a little bit? Well, I think that there's several things happening in Arctic governance right now. So, of course, as you correctly mentioned, the role of the non-Arctic states will become a big challenge that Arctic stakeholders have to figure out in the in the coming decades. But there are other challenges as well. I mean, we, thus far, the uh, the impact of the Ukraine crisis has been relatively mild in the Arctic, but that can change in the future. And we don't know if geopolitical competition between uh, Russia and the United States or, or the United States and China will have uh, implications for Arctic politics. So that's, that can also be another cause of change in the region. And then furthermore, there are specific governance issues that require institutional reform for instance, uh, as we talked about before, how do you organize fisheries in the Central Arctic Ocean? Probably you, re- you require some sort of uh, regional fisheries organizations. Organization, sorry. So, so there's, there's a need to engage in negotiations about those questions. And all of these changes are potential points for conflict as well. I mean, there are opportunities to solve these issues, but negotiations can, of course, go wrong. And in that case, I think that it's just very nice for the coastal states to have some leverage, to have a fallback option. And I think that that A5 serves that purpose. Perhaps you could say a few words about this latest meeting, which took place uh, in Alulasat, May 22nd and 23rd, uh, celebrating uh, 10 uh, years. Uh, What happened there? And uh, was it as successful as the uh, government of Denmark and uh, Greenland had hoped for it to be? It was an initiative that originally appeared in a Danish foreign policy report from 2016, 
basically it was a big review of Danish foreign policy in all regions. And one of the suggestions that uh, came out of that report, uh, specifically about the Arctic, was that, hey, we, we actually had this relatively successful initiative 10 years ago. Perhaps we should reconvene at the uh, 10-year anniversary and uh, talk about where things are going right now. And uh, on the face of it, I think, I think it was a really good idea. And I, uh, in the report, we also mentioned that we think that Denmark should definitely do this. And I think it was a good idea for several reasons. First of all, because it's always a good, a good idea to talk a little bit about one's successes. And it's a good idea to continue to talk about the uh, relatively peaceful situation we see right now in the high north and the, uh, the relatively well-functioning cooperation we have. So it's a good opportunity to just remind ourselves that we're seeing eye to eye in the northern sphere. But furthermore, I think it, it, it's also a good idea because it gives the coastal states an opportunity to meet in the A5 format and to thus remind the world that the A5 format still exists and thus they can help reinforce that format. I think that when the Danish government invited the other countries to Illyricis again, I think they had imagined that higher-profile people would show up. In Illyricis this time around, it was only uh, Denmark, the Faroe Islands, and Greenland who, uh, who sent their foreign ministers. Most other countries sent either other ministers or high-ranking civil servants. So in, in that sense, I think that it didn't really achieve all the things that policymakers in Copenhagen had hoped that it would. But it was still, I mean, it was, it was a good idea, and everyone talked about how great the, uh, the A5 is and how great the Lulisat initiative was, and it was a chance also to, to strengthen this more inclusive image that A5 has gotten over the past eight years, right? So uh, this time around, you also have uh, Sweden and uh, Finland and Iceland showing up, kind of burying the hatchet from, <laughs> from, from a decade earlier, right? And you also have the Inuit organizations showing up. And in that sense, I mean, as, as I said before, it's the, you, you get to uh, reinforce this image of a forum that's open to others than just the coastal states. So in, in that sense, you, you get over that original critique that it was a, 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 an exclusive forum. Were any decisions made or any declarations or any, anything tangible, or is it more just reinforcing this image of cooperation and peace in the Arctic? Yeah, it was mainly just an opportunity to repeat that same old song that the Arctic is peaceful and there's uh, all, all kinds of reasons to cooperate. There were, I mean, the, the Danish and Canadian government came out with a bilateral message that they wanted to, um, that they're going to, to negotiate some territorial disputes, including the uh, Hans Island uh, territorial dispute between Greenland and northern Canada. But besides from that, it was mainly an opportunity to, to, uh, to repeat the message once again. The, and in that sense, I mean, if you look back at the 10-year period, you could, you could actually argue that, <laughs> that the Lulisat framework has become a victim of its own success, right? Because, I mean, 10 years ago, that message was important. But today, the Illulicet Initiative and other governance initiatives have been so successful that today everyone accepts that the Arctic is a peaceful region. So in that sense, the fact that the new Illulicet meeting didn't cause any, uh, any large ripples just goes to show how successful the Illulicet Initiative has been. 
I also wonder if there might be some other more internal um, purpose and and way to evaluate the, this meeting in terms of the Kingdom of Denmark and relations between uh, Denmark, uh, Greenland, and the Faroe Islands. And, and the fact you mentioned that the three foreign ministers of those three parts of the kingdom were were there, and uh, the Greenland, together with Denmark, was hosting the um, the meeting this this past week. Could you see it also then as as a sort of a confidence building measure between Greenland and Denmark now that there's a very uncertain future in terms of the union there? A, a way to build trust in some sort of common cause in Arctic governance with Denmark and Greenland jointly convening such a high-level meeting? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Great. Yes, I, I totally agree. As you mentioned, right, uh, the relationship between Denmark and Greenland can be relatively complicated at times. And I think that the, uh, it's therefore important that Nuke and Copenhagen seize every opportunity to, to show that they can accomplish things together. And, of course, I mean, the Lulicet initiative was not just a Danish initiative. It was, it was a joint Danish-Greenlandic initiative. So, so meeting now in Lulicet is a good opportunity for Denmark and Greenland to remind one another what they can accomplish together, right? So it's a chance for the Danes to show the Greenlanders, look, we can offer you something in terms of uh, diplomatic capability and diplomatic strategy. And Greenland can remind Denmark that, hey, without Greenland, you wouldn't even be uh, be able to, to pull off initiatives like this. So, so it kind of demonstrates how the two parties have a, have a symbiotic relationship to one another, right? That they kind of both get something out of the current arrangement. And as things are internally in the Kingdom of Denmark right now, I think that every chance you get to talk about those shared opportunities, the better. That was John Robert Clemenson in the first of a two-part interview with the Polar Geopolitics podcast. In the next episode, John will dive deeper into Danish-Greenlandic relations, and also discuss the geopolitics of Greenland, particularly in the context of China's increasing interest in the territory's resources and growing influence over its politics. You can follow this podcast on iTunes and Apple Podcasts, on Facebook at facebook.com slash polargeopolitics, and on Twitter at polargeopol. Visit the website at polargeopolitics.com. Additional voiceover by Keith Foster. Theme music by Mark Vandenbosch. Artwork by Daniel Brockman. IT assistance by Katrine Erickson. This is Eric Paglia in Stockholm. Thanks for listening. And stay tuned for more episodes of Polar Geopolitics.